Listeners, start your engines. episode 36 rob here coming in with the last episode of 2022 no you did not don't do not check your change your dial you have uh, not missed the beverly hills cop mega series life and the third round of covid in my household here at crooked table hq got in the way we will start 2023 with beverly hills cop one two and three before jumping into uh another probably standalone and then another mega series we have lots planned you'll you'll see it as we go along so instead we're going to our holiday gift to you the listeners this has been a hugely uh successful and exciting year for franchise detours uh our first full year in fact the previous year we launched i think in july with the child's play franchise so i felt it only right to comment on the phenomenon that has been 2022's biggest film, Top Gun Maverick. So I sat down with Karen Peterson of Citizen Dame, self-professed Tom Cruise mega fan, to talk about those two movies, what they uh, have to say about Tom's career, Cruise's career, Tom, like we're buddies. Um, (laughs) Not yet. We'll see. Maybe after this episode. Uh, to, to talk about his career, how these two movies connect to each other, how they build on each other, and why Top Gun Maverick has been the insanely unexpected, at least on my end. I feel like none of us, if you told me two years ago when we got the first Top Gun Maverick trailer that that would be the biggest movie of 2022, the year, whatever year it was eventually come out, over Marvel films and all of these big epic blockbusters, uh, and it's a sequel to a, a admittedly beloved film from the mid '80s that's coming in and launching past a million and a, uh, a billion and a half at the worldwide box office. I don't think any of us saw that coming. And now we're talking in the midst of the uh, awards race. As it's, is Top Gun Maverick going to be nominated for Best Picture? Does it have any chance at winning Best Picture? We'll talk about some of the uh, Oscar stuff in this episode as well. As always, you can find more episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this right now. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 1986's Top Gun and 2022's Top Gun Maverick. I'm going to send you up against the best. Yes, sir. You two characters are going to Top Gun. I feel the need... The need for speed. For five weeks, you're going to fly against the best fighter pilots in the world. You guys really are cowboys. I don't like you because you're unsafe. That's right. I am dangerous. The wild card flies by the seat of his pants. Yeah, I guess when I see something, I go right after it. It takes a lot more than just fancy flying. Gentlemen, this school is about combat. There are no points for second place. Figured it out yet? What's that? Who's the best pilot? No, I think I can figure that one out on my own. Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis. Top Gun. 
here is the best there is. Who the hell are they gonna get to teach us? Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. What the hell? Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking. And we're off. Here we go. In three, two, one. We're going into combat on a level no living pilot's ever seen. Not even him. You think up there you're dead. Believe me. My dad believed in you. I'm not going to make the same mistake. Someone's not coming back from this. Those are your pilots. Anything happens to them. You'll never forgive yourself. No turning back now. Yet. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, the final episode of Franchise Detours for 2022, we are here to talk about Top Gun from 1986 and Top Gun Maverick from this year, 2022, the year's highest grossing film thus far. Uh, in fact, which, you know, maybe will change with Avatar and some of the other movies coming later uh, in December. But as of now, we're going to we're going we're gonna to stick to that claim. And I am honored to welcome to the show, Karen Peterson. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So tell people about uh, everything you have going on, Citizen Dame, the watch and talk, what where you're writing these days and where they can find you. Yeah, uh, it's it's been kind of an interesting journey the last couple of years. I've kind of bounced around um, a couple different sites, but now I'm freelancing, which I love. It's um, it's a lot of fun. I've actually gotten to do some some work with Variety, which is so much fun. Um, and yeah, I'm building my podcasts, Citizen Dame and The Watch and Talk, two very different podcasts that are about kind of the same thing. So uh, Citizen Dame is all sorts of things, um, in the industry, but from a female perspective and the watch and talk is a, a weekly, why are words failing me? I don't know what my problem is. Um, but like a weekly review show, we just pick a movie, we talk about it and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. <laughs> and then when I had the idea to do, to do this episode, because obviously, you know, there's, there's a lot of films that came out in 2022 that are critically acclaimed and, you know, box office hits and everything, but I feel like Top Gun Maverick is weirdly like the the blockbuster of the year, and I say weirdly in, for reasons we'll get to. Uh, yeah. and, and so when I had the idea of doing that, I know that you're famously a big Tom Cruise fan. Uh, <laughs> 
let's let's touch on that. What is your your history with Mr. Cruz before we we get to Top Gun specifically? Well, oddly enough, my history with Tom Cruise begins in 1986 with Top Gun. You can uh, tell you're a podcaster because that's a perfect. <laughs> that's you're like already segueing us into the next part of the podcast. <laughs> Well, but but it's really true. So in 1986, I was a I was a child who loved movies. My parents took us to the movies all the time. I grew up in the theater. Um, you know, I was doing an episode on the Fablemans this weekend, and I joked that Steven Spielberg co-raised me with my parents. Um, but uh, but yeah. So in 1986, my dad took us to an air show, which was something that we did every year. And after the air show, he took us to see Top Gun. And I was only nine years old, but it was such a it was such a profound experience for me. I was so into it. I was so in love with this movie, even at the age of nine. And I was absolutely mesmerized by Tom Cruise, even as a nine-year-old, even without understanding what I was feeling. It was just, it was love at first sight. And um, yeah, that has carried on. I love the on-screen person. We're not here to talk I was, about the off-screen I, stuff. I, I, yes, I have a note of that as well that I wanted to mention <laughs> up top of this episode just before we go on praising the Top Gun films <laughs> yeah. that we're not touching on Tom Cruise's real life, this, you know, Scientology or in his marriages, any of that. It's like we're talking about Tom Cruise, the movie star. I don't know him in real life, so who am I to to like get into all of that. That's for a different podcast. That's a different conversation, I guess is what we're saying. Exactly. Exactly. It is. But, but yeah, and I've seen every single one of his movies, uh, most of them multiple times, most of them many times, honestly. And um, yeah, that's kind of, it, it sort of started as a joke back in my award circuit days where I just talked about how much I, you know, I loved him as a, as a movie star and it just somehow became kind of part of my brand for lack of a better <laughs> word that um yeah now I'm just known as the critic who loves Tom Cruise I have not met him yet but I feel like it's it's coming I think the day is is coming <laughs> yeah there you go it, it'll happen one day maybe this episode will help I'll be like hey she, she's manifesting it into the universe let Karen and Tom be in the same room together at some point <laughs> and cross paths we actually have been in the same room oh, okay see you are getting have. closer we have yes um and it is something that we can talk about later in this episode because it actually has to do with uh, with the Top Gun franchise. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get there. Uh, so, is Top Gun your favorite of his movies? I guess that just or or is is his is his favorite? Is your favorite Tom Cruise movie one of the two we're going to be discussing in this episode? They're they're very high up on my list, but my favorite Tom Cruise movie is and probably always will be Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Same. <laughs> yeah, I love Jerry Maguire. If I ever if I ever cover that on my uh, my other podcast, Close Watch, I'll have to have uh, I'll have to have you come back on because I I adore that movie so much. Uh, I will be there with bells on. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So as far as Top Gun, uh, this came out in 1986, as we mentioned, directed by the late Tony Scott, and I I think people even people nowadays like I feel like younger moviegoers might be you know be familiar with Top Gun, obviously, but it's not not giving it the full credit of what a phenomenon this thing was when it came out. Fifteen million dollar budget, one hundred eighty million domestic in nineteen eighty six. 
357 worldwide. And that's, you know, I'm sure that accounts for some re-releases along the way, et cetera. But the highest grossing movie of 1986. So it's so funny that Maverick came out in 2022 and is has similarly extraordinary numbers, uh, but, you know, also highest grossing movie of its year. And this, as you were saying, like with your experience, this was the huge launch point for Tom Cruise in a lot of ways, even though he had been in The Outsiders, obviously Risky Business was sort of laying the foundation, but this is the film that made Tom Cruise a a capital M movie star, essentially, right? A global movie star, really. Yeah, this was it. And it, it was a movie that that kind of changed everything. And the fact that it it's still a movie that we're talking about today, I think, and and that he's still the capital M movie star, as you say, uh, I think is is really remarkable. And it started right here. Yeah, and it's it's funny too because we just talked about on this podcast the uh, the Beverly Hills Cop franchise, uh, which similarly launched Eddie Murphy, has uh, a lot of the same producing team involved. Uh, I think the Harold Faltermeyer is composing and a, a lot of uh, similarities there as well. Tony Scott actually did Beverly Hills Cop too. So it's very much in that vein of uh, mid 80s action uh, blockbusters. I think that's, it's kind of funny that that ended up just being the way that the the schedule unfolded, that we went right from Beverly Hills Cop to Top Gun. Um, so I, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to lay this conversation out. Cause it's going to be a lot of back and forth because these two films, there's, there's a lot of callbacks and references, but it's also feels the sequel feels very much like its own thing. Uh, I guess to start with, I should, you told your story for when you first saw, saw Top Gun, I actually saw Top Gun for the first time, like a week or two before Maverick came out. Oh, wow. Uh, I know. And I'm a big Tom Cruise fan and I had meant to get to this forever and I just had never gotten to it because I was like, oh, I get it. They fly planes. You know, it's one of those films that you you feel like, you know, before you've seen it. Like I knew Danger Zone, obviously, and Take My Breath Away and I feel the need for speed and all the lines and moments. And, you know, so I it, it was one of those that I was like, I feel like I, I, I understand what that is. And uh, so I, I had actually just never gotten around to it until Maverick. And I was like, well, now I need to jump aboard this Top Gun, uh, I guess, fighter fighter jet at this point and, uh, and get into that. So I enjoyed the film, but I didn't enjoy the film in the way that someone that grew up with it for decades would. But I want to get into some of, the, some of the specific things about it. So first of all, uh, let's see. First of all, I... I think it's worth noting that they, the producers, the teams on both films were working with the U S Navy on these films. Do you consider, do you consider these films, are these propaganda movies? What did they have to say about the military? I think that's one of the things that to just kind of get out of the way up front, uh, are these pro military or are these a little more complicated than that? Cause I get sort of, more complex shades than than just you know raw raw go go U.S. Navy. Yeah, I actually I totally agree with you on that, and I think that it's a little bit unfair that people tend to boil this down to a propaganda movie because yes. I think there's so much more to it than that. And I think one of the things that makes it so great is that it shows the layers and it shows that there is depth 
in the people who, in many of the people who choose to serve our country. And so while I think that there are definitely elements of like, hey, this is very pro-U.S. military, is also showing that the people who who sign up, who go out and put their lives on the line, there are a lot of reasons why they do that. And there are a lot of, of things that happen to them in the course of having that experience of serving. And so I think that that propaganda is a really is kind of a dismissive word for yeah. what this is, but I do think it's. I think both movies are very pro-military, um, yeah, but not in a like you say, not in that rah-rah, um, you know, America kicks ass and and everyone else can just go sit down. <laughs> you know, it's it's not right. quite like that. That's not what these are about. I think what's interesting is that there are characters that embody that sort of uh, perspective. And then Maverick, I feel like, starts more from that perspective. And then as the two films develop, one of the things about both movies, especially Maverick, uh, the sequel that uh, resonates with me emotionally, is his. It, these movies feel very humanistic in a lot of ways. Like yeah. the, the, the superiors, the people that have been sort of desensitized to the loss the, of, of, uh, of their pilots and things like that, uh, they, you know, they're operating from a, a sense of practicality. Like, you know, it, you, 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 you stay in this, you fly long enough, you're going to lose your wingman. It's going to happen again. There'll be others, that kind of thing. And, and that's a sentiment that Maverick repeats in, in the sequel, but it's also, he is still grieving the loss of his friend from, you know, 30 years earlier. And there's a moment in, in Maverick, and this is, to, just, I, I enjoyed Top Gun, but I wasn't like enraptured by it because I had just watched it recently. <laughs> but then watching Maverick and having such a, a strong emotional reaction to it, it made the first film better in retrospect because you see the development of that character. There's a moment in the sequel that uh, where he says, you know, John Hamm's character says, oh, you know, you're training them to do this mission to get, get this thing and get out of the, you know, what, you know, accomplish this mission, whatever, and that kind of thing. And he's like, and to come home, Maverick says. And he's like, excuse me? He's like, and to come home, sir. Like, he emphasizes these are people's lives. Like, the, the loss that of Goose hit him so personally that it, it's, he's, he's seeing these, peop- these pilots as individuals. That's a, a, a movie that, that's a, a message that the movie really uh, hits home again and again is, is like you were saying, these are complex people with their own lives, with their own families that sign up for this. And it's a sacrifice that they make, but it's, it's not one to be taken lightly. And I don't think the movies are implying that the military necessarily does, but there's a desensitization, desensitization, see now words are failing me. They (laughs) they get desensitized to that loss. Whereas Maverick uh, kind of refuses to let that, that happen to him, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, just um, to your point about, you know, Maverick kind of starts off in Top Gun when we first meet him. It's very much like, I just want to win. But for him, really, because of the history that he has and like he feels like he's got something to prove because of his father. Yeah. Um, I think that he comes into this. It's not even there. It's not really like I want to win for my country. It's I just need to succeed. I personally need to be the best. I need everyone to know this. And over the course of the two films, 
you see the way that that he has grown as a person and how it's really become so much less about himself. He's still, as we go into the second movie, he's still very much an individual. He's very much going to kind of go against the grain and and make choices that are not necessarily what he's supposed to do. But his reasons for those choices completely shift because of the experiences definitely of the first movie. And then the assumptions we can make about the experiences he's had in the 30 years in between. And, and so where we catch up with him now, he is very much not at all in this for himself. He's in it for everyone else. And I think that's just such a, I think one of the things that makes Maverick such a great film and why it has done so well this year, um, Tom Cruise's first $1 billion movie. I mean, that's pretty Mm -hmm. incredible. Um, But I think one of the reasons is because this does what so few sequels actually accomplish, which is to understand the first movie and the character growth that that happened as a result, and then to really, truly sit down and imagine where this character would be all these years later in a way that really makes logical sense. And what sort of lessons would he have learned? What sort of experiences would he have had? Who is he today? And... And to make that movie instead of something that is just a continuation of what we saw before. You know, I heard all sorts of rumors for years about the ideas that were floating around about what this sequel would be. And so when I, when I, after Tony Scott died and, and Cruz was like, we're going to make this movie, we're going to do this for Tony. Um, I was a little bit afraid of, of how it would turn out because it was just, you know, it's, you never know what sequels are going to do, especially when they've been so long overdue um, or, you know, quote unquote overdue. I don't know. Um, I don't know how often movies really need to have a sequel, but, but I think that in this case, this was something that was, had been a passion project for Tony Scott for so long that it became a passion project for, for Tom Cruise. And, what we got was something that I think was really true to the character and really true to the world that we live in as well. Yeah. And it's, you see a person who's refused to rise above the rank of captain, who's (laughs) still keeping a lot of like, he's still wearing the same or at least a similar, it looks like the same jacket, uh, driving the similar motorcycle, just kind of like, doing the, the most good that he can in the Navy without really like taking a desk job or, you know, the, the one of the characters is like, uh, you know, you should be a two-star admiral or a, sen- a senator by now or something. Uh, <laughs> and the fact that he's like, yeah, no, I just want to fly planes. Like I, I'm just doing, doing what I can and using, putting my skills to good use, but it would have been e- easy even now to just be like, okay, you know, Maverick is, even if he's staying in that rank of captain, He's uh, he's just on another mission kind of thing. But the fact that it's such, and I think this is part of why I just, spoilers for the end when we talk about comparing the two, um, why I, the second film works for me so much more is that it's so much richer because the first one lays the foundation for this character, uh, who he is and the trauma that he endures and losing his friend and then how that has affected every single decision he's made for the rest of his life and altered the entire course of his life because of it. Now he's haunted by it. And then here it, it he applies that and it, 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 um, it applies that to his character and it, it deepens him so much more. And I think you get a, a really sort of 
uh, world-weary sort of edge to Tom Cruise's performance, in addition to paying off the setup of uh, that was kind of basically baked into the original film, which was like, oh, you know, Top Gun graduates can always come back as an instructor, and we still get that, but in a completely different context, and, I, and that's what I love. I love that so much. Yeah, yeah. One thing that that always kind of struck me is is like you understand why they ended the movie that way. But in the first movie, the fact that he does go back to be an instructor at Top Gun, it's like, but I just don't feel like Maverick would have been happy there. So I yeah. love that in this one, right off the bat, they just let you know, yeah, he lasted two months. <laughs> it did not work out because that was not who he was. <laughs> yeah, he had to get back in the air immediately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, as we're saying, the Maverick is the character that is grown and changed and is defined his, his life comes to be defined by the loss of goose um you still get a lot of the the uh the pilots sort of playing off of each other and competing and all that just with a different group this time so what is it about this what is it about maverick as a legacy sequel that makes it soar where so many others like more recent you know, the Jurassic worlds and all these other attempts at that, like what makes this movie work? Cause it does have a lot of callbacks and references. The, the reveal that Maverick is, is the teacher that they kind of, you know, threw out of the bar mirrors the thing with Charlie from the first one. And there's certain lines and moments and dynamics, Iceman and Maverick is very similar to the rooster and uh, hangman, uh, you know, rivalry. What, what is it about that? Where is the line between paying homage and calling back and then becoming kind of a, a sort of a remake of itself. I think they found it. I don't, I don't even know exactly how to explain where that line is, but, but somehow they, they figured it out. And I think it's that um, it's not. So all the things that are callbacks to the first film, I think, are done with a lot of respect and reverence and not like just a wink and a nod to the audience. Like yeah. some of them, you get a sense that this is just kind of, you know, it, 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 it's done in a way that it makes sense. You know, in, in Top Gun, it was that Maverick was flirting with Charlie in the bar and then, Oh crap, she's his teacher. He didn't see that coming. In this case, they're har- like, it's these young guys kind of harassing, you know, friendly way, teasing this, quote unquote old man and throwing him out of the bar and then oops he's their teacher and so it's in both cases it's um kind of a lack of of imagination that wow this person could actually be someone that's going to be important in my education like kind of this you know that navy flyboy like looking at looking down on other people in a way yeah or just looking at them differently not not expecting that they could um be someone of significance and I think what makes that work and why that doesn't just feel like retread is because it's taking the, it's not like, I think if it had been um, what, like the female pilot flirting with Maverick and then, Oh shoot the next day, then that would have not worked. That would have just been too much like the first movie, but where they're just taking like who these characters are and what makes sense in that scene in that moment. Um, it's, it's, that's where the, the the homage happens without it feeling too much like repeating itself. And they avoid the obvious ones. Like nobody says they have the need for speed or anything like that. Like right. they don't, yeah. yeah, everything feels like it's, 
it's, you know, to basically, it feels like a lot of them, specifically the Great Balls of Fire 2.0 that we get in this in this film, I think it, it's designed to be, to refresh the minds of fans of the original. And also I feel like, and you know, you can weigh in on this too, this, it feel like Top Gun Maverick functions as a standalone. Like if you've never seen Top Gun, you don't really need to, like it deepens the experience obviously, but they give you all the little flashbacks and references and backstory that you need. Like if you, if I hadn't gone, gotten a chance to see the first film before I went to Maverick, I would have been able to, you know, I would, I would have been just as uh, enjoying the experience just as much uh, in a way. I think that's probably true. I have to just assume because, you know, I've seen the original so many times that I, I imagine that it doesn't fundamentally change your experience of this movie if you haven't seen that first that first one, or at least not negatively. It doesn't negatively impact it. I think being very familiar and very comfortable with the, the first film um, just makes certain moments richer in this one. Like as soon as yeah. Jennifer Connelly comes on screen and he said, Penny, I knew immediately, oh my gosh, that is Penny Benjamin. And I was so excited because, you know, it was just, okay, now I'm totally fine with them not bringing back Charlie because they reached back into Maverick's past even before that and gave this interesting, you know, layer to this on-again, off-again romance that he's had for decades that started before we ever met Maverick in the first place. So things like that, I, I just thought were were fascinating but that and you wouldn't get that if you've never seen the original film right but it also doesn't mean that you can't follow this one or appreciate it absolutely uh and since we've mentioned charlie and uh and penny i think the both of these movies have a romantic subplot uh as we sort of mentioned i think the one with charlie Definitely way more problematic by today's standards. Uh, <laughs> yeah. An instructor and a student, I think that they obviously weren't going to go that route for a number of different reasons. One, it would have been repeating themselves. But two, that's a little ickier nowadays than it was in 1986. Uh, what are your, what do you, how do you feel about those two romances and how they compare? Because I, I feel like the one with Charlie, like the, there's not, I don't know, maybe it's just because those characters, these, I have more of a connection with Jennifer Connelly than Kelly McGillis because both of those characters are older because they have these decades of history. I feel like there's a lot, for some reason, I feel a lot more weight in the Maverick romance, but what, where do you, you know, as someone who grew up with the original film, how do those two uh, love stories compare? I actually totally agree with you. I think that there's just, I, I think this is why it was really important if they weren't going to bring Charlie back that they needed to um, give Maverick somebody that we could instantly connect with. And I think that it was really smart to make that be this person that we had just only heard reference to yeah. in Top Gun. Um, because I think that it's funny because, you know, when I was younger, I always just kind of imagined, oh, yeah, Maverick and Charlie, like, that's a that's a great relationship. And as I've gotten older, I realize, man, he was this young kid who was still really figuring out who he was. And mm -hmm. she was a career woman. She was she had moved on to Washington. She had taken another job like their lives were going in very different directions. And as much as it's fun to imagine the and they lived happily ever after ending of a movie like the way that Top Gun ends, that's not reality. And when you're when you're revisiting this character all these years later, 
it makes a lot of sense to let that relationship be something that was a past relationship that doesn't even really get a mention because for poor Maverick, it probably was an important relationship in his life. She was the one that was there when he lost his best friend, but it's not the relationship. She's not the love of his life. And I think that they handled that really well in a way that um, because of the fact that they decided to do this like longer, deeper history, you instantly are on board with Maverick and Penny. And it really does feel like by the end of that movie, you feel like good, they're going to be together forever. This is he, she is the love of his life. And she always was even before he ever met Charlie. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I know Kelly McGillis has said she wasn't asked back and there's all kinds of reasons we could speculate as to why that might be. Uh, But I do think, like you were saying, I do think not only, bringing Penny back into the mix, but uh, having it be Jennifer Connelly, someone who was all already in movies like around that time. Like she, obviously mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a, an age differential there uh, with her and Tom Cruise, because not I, that I much compared to, no, not that posters. much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, I feel like also there's a line in Maverick where he says it's been almost 30 years. The movies come apart, come out like 36 years apart, something like that. And I feel like, there's, I feel like Tom Cruise is supposed to be playing slightly younger than he actually is. I think he's supposed, I think Maverick's supposed to be more like 50 and having a co-star that's more on that line, I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, you know, like I said, she feels like she she could have easily been working with Tom Cruise in movies in the 80s because they were both, we as moviegoers have that sort of shared history with both of these stars. Uh, and and so I, I love that that they like you were saying that they, their loves, their, their, their connection runs deep. And there's a line in, in Maverick that, that I really stood out to me this time uh, upon rewatch where he says to, he says to the pilots at one point, cause they're figuring out the mission. Uh, and he says, you know, time is your greatest enemy. And that struck me as such a, such a theme of both of these films, specifically the second one, but the first movie, the first, like, you know, half to two thirds right before the, the accident with goose. It's just much more like, you know, uh, these pilots are all competing. Who's going to be the top. The stakes are basically who's going to be number one in the class in top gun. Right. Uh, is, is, is the, is the thrust of the story in the first one. And then when goose dies, that entire, the movie shifts, it's got this injection of, um, of emotion like late in the game and Maverick's whole focus, like you said, it be, turns to being about on other people. He's not as focused about, he doesn't even get to be number one in his class. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. Congratulations. Um, and so going into this movie with his relationship with Penny that has decades of history, with his relationship with Iceman, with his his relationship with with Rooster, it feels like you feel you feel that 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 time gap between movies. Uh, and I think it, it lends so much more gravitas to uh, to his story at this at this point in his life. Yeah, absolutely. And just on the note of of he didn't get to finish first. I love how there is that kind of moment when he's meeting with John Hamm and and um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the other person. The character's Warlock, I believe. Warlock, I yeah. Yeah. When uh, when he's meeting with them and and oh yeah Maverick was first in his class too nope nope I was second and I love that because it's one of those things where 
you you forget that the hero didn't win. You know, kind of like how we forget Rocky didn't win the first, you know, the yeah. the first movie. Spoiler alert for Rocky. But um, you know, it's like we we just kind of forget that the heroes don't always win and I think that's one of the things that made Maverick even that much more of an emotionally or sorry, Top Gun, even that much more of an emotionally rich movie is the fact that it didn't all work out perfectly with like a pretty bow, you know, like not only did he lose his friend, like he went through a lot. And I mean, obviously that was the biggest part of it, but it's like, you know, it's just, there was so much into that. And I think that's all part of what led to him really becoming a much more humble person. Um, Obviously Tom Skerritt has that line about how, pilots need to have that, that ego, but, um, but they also need to lose a little bit of that. And he did. And I completely forgot what my point was in saying that. (laughs) No, but But, but Maverick learns humility in that first movie. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't need to win. In fact, winning Top Gun would have probably been worse for him. I think. Yeah. I I love the, the sort of ideological kind of back and forth between him and Iceman. And then in the, in the second film with hangman and rooster, because both times the quote bad guy, Iceman or hangman is kind of right. Like they're right to call the other person out. Like is their philosophy, you know, fully, you know, uh, fully correct either. Not necessarily, but like when he says, when, when Iceman calls Maverick out in the locker room, uh, right before, right before he bites the air for some reason, which is a great moment. Those two, just just an aside, Kilmer and Cruz have such chemistry in both of these movies that it makes me kind of annoyed that we didn't get like a bunch of other movies with them. Just not even Top Gun movies. Just like they should have crossed paths more uh, right. on the big screen because yeah. they're so great in both of these movies together. Definitely, yep. Uh, but but when he calls him out and he says you're dangerous, he's right. When Hangman is like. Rooster is not ready. You know, you know that I'm right. And he makes that whole, that whole, uh, you know, that whole confrontation in the middle of the class. He's right. Like the bad guy, the, the arrogant guy, especially in hangman's case, uh, is, is right. And so it, it, it gives, it adds that moral complexity where they're not they're You know, these characters are not black and white. These characters, there, there are, there are layers to them, to Iceman, to hangman, which Glenn Powell is so great in this movie. Um, so much fun as that character. And, and I think fully does, does justice to, uh, to the mantle of uh, Top Gun antagonist, essentially. He absolutely does. He's so great. And what a fantastic character. Um, I believe he originally, if I got the story right, I believe he originally actually was, was um, trying to land the role of Rooster. And that didn't work out, but they liked him so much that they were like, no, 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 we have another role for you. And so that's how he ended up as, as hangman. And I think he's so perfect as hangman. And I think one of the things that makes that character so great is that he really does have this giant ego. As you say, he is totally right and perceptive in a lot of ways, but because of that, um, always being out for himself in a, in a similar, but different way to how, Maverick was in Top Gun, um, like a little bit more obnoxious and a little bit more dangerous, probably. But mm-hmm. um, but that's why he ends up having to sit out at you know at first in the mission. But he understands and respects the job, so he doesn't throw fit. He doesn't whine when he's basically just put in the reserve team and and told just sit there and wait. 
you know, he just, he's there to do a job. And I love that so much. And I think Glenn Powell really, um, sells that in such a way that it's like, you could, you could totally see him just, you know, having a fit, but he doesn't do that. And instead it's like, yeah. So when he gets his chance at a heroic moment, you feel like, okay, he earned this because he did wait his turn. And I just, I love that bit of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what do you make of, because I've seen this a, a bunch of different places, all the comparisons to the third act to Star Wars, that they're like, oh, the trench run, he comes back like Han Solo. Like, does, what, are you just like, do you shrug it off? Or are you like, oh, it's a point there. Like, what, what is your reaction to that? I shrug it off. It's like, eh. I mean, you can make a lot of <laughs> yeah. comparisons between a lot of movies and, I don't think that they were specifically trying to no, reference I don't that either. at all. <laughs> it's all it's it's also it's it's all archetypal too. Yeah. It's just like that's that's storytelling. You're gonna you know yeah, and it works in both cases. So like, what are we complaining about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> in fact, as soon as Hangman was not par- not chosen as one of the main team. I knew I was like, okay, something's going to happen and he's going to end up coming in, (laughs) you know, the rescue team and he's going to get a chance to help save the day. And when that happened, I wasn't like, oh, that was so predictable. I was like, yes, this makes sense. This is the story that they're telling. Speaking of the the cast of these movies, like we've been talking a lot about obviously Tom Cruise and, and uh, and Val Kilmer, we should get to him in a second too. But mm-hmm. but like such a both of them, I think have really notable supporting casts. Uh, Tom Skerritt, like you mentioned in the first one, Michael Ironside, James Tolkien, and Meg and Meg Ryan, uh, and then uh, in the second one, John Hamm and uh, and Ed Harris. You know, I think the, the these movies do a really great job at filling those those supporting roles with uh, characters and actors like, like Glenn Powell that really make that material shine. Yeah. You know, it's funny cause I am not a huge fan of Miles Teller. And when I found out he was going to be in this and I found out he was going to be Goose's son, I was a little bit not looking forward to that. Yeah. That's understandable. But man, he ended up being so perfect. He, he, he could have been Anthony Edwards' son. He really could have. They did such a great job with his look. He did, such a great job with like mannerisms and, and um, just the way that he approached the role and he won me over and I just was, was really impressed by him. I thought, I think it's, I thought he was fantastic. I think it's because Miles Teller as, as a performer has a certain standoffishness that can be off putting, but also works for this character who is so guarded so it's it's one of those examples of of you you took what could be perceived as that actor's flaws and you weaponized it by putting him in just the right slot in just the right role in just the right movie and yeah, uh, absolutely. and I I think that's I think that's probably what it is because I I totally get that like he's he I'm very hot and cold on Miles Teller as well uh, but I th- I think he works in this film for that reason and I love the fact that when they're <laughs> when they're looking at the picture. Of oh, does this look familiar? And, and it's like, you know how how much Rooster is just same haircut, same mustache as his dad. It's like look familiar. I'm like, yeah, it looks like this. I'm like, and and that that there's this, you know, that's movie logic too. Just what I love about it. I'm like, I don't have the exact same hairstyle 
facial hair, uh, clothing, like as my dad. But but the fact that he that he's, that he's just taken all out upon himself, I love it as visual storytelling, but it also always sort of tickles me. I'm like, yeah, and he styled himself exactly after his dad, which I think totally, is Totally, but, but look at one of the reasons why that worked. Yeah, it does. Mustaches are back. Like, dudes are walking around with mustaches and no beard, just like they did in the 80s. If that wasn't currently a trend, it would have felt a little bit more off. But because that's actually, you know, a very common trend nowadays, again, um, it totally worked. And it didn't feel, it didn't feel like it's just trying to, like, make sure that you know that this is Goose's son. Yeah. We have to talk about uh, the the scene with Iceman and Maverick. Yeah. Uh, because, geez, obviously for people listening and don't know, uh, Val Kilmer has been struggling with throat cancer for a few years and can no longer speak. And so I, I believe it was old recordings mixed together with like his son's voice or something is how they digitized like the uh, the version of Iceman's voice that we get in Maverick. Uh, as someone... Who, who grew up with, with, you know, with the original film, what kind of, how did that hit you emotionally? Because we knew going into this that he was in it, but I don't think we knew exactly how he was going to factor into the story. Oh man. It was so interesting to watch this in a full theater of, of critics that were most, the first time I watched it, that were mostly men who were in tears in this scene. And deservedly so because it really is so moving and to to get to see where these two characters started off in the first movie and how they really were enemies but by the end they had learned to work together and respected each other and then to see the natural you know evolution of that where they became absolutely you know inseparable in in a lot of ways and that Tom I'm sorry Maverick really does owe his his career and the fact that he got to stay in the Navy all these years to Iceman, who went up the ranks. He he stayed in and he did, you know, he did all of the work and he's he became an admiral. And over and over again you get those references that he saved that he saved Maverick's career. Anytime he got himself in trouble, Iceman would make a call. And so getting to know that that was their their history leading into the the scene. Uh, it made that scene that much more powerful because it it's like they're sitting down face to face, probably for the first time in a really long time, because when Maverick shows up at the house and finds out, oh, the cancer's back and and um, he can't talk anymore. It's clear that they have just been messaging back and forth for a long time. They probably haven't spoken in, in a couple of years. And so mm-hmm. I think that I think that what you get with with the reality of what was happening off screen um, really shines through in this beautiful moment where Iceman now um, at the end of essentially at the end of his life and Maverick at the end of his career, um, Iceman is still giving him these hard truths, but in a much more loving and um, kind and compassionate way. And it's, it's such a, it's such a moving scene. And then getting to, to hear that, you know, like Iceman's final words to Maverick, even if it isn't fully Val Kilmer, it's, it's just, it's kind of magical. Yeah. So much 
just it's such a showcase for both of those performers and it and in a lot of ways Ma- uh, Maverick feels like it, it, there's a meta textualness to Top Gun Maverick. One, I feel like the way it starts with the Dark Star sequence and with Maverick being told, oh, you know, your, your time is ending, the future's coming, you're not in it. And Tom Cruise being like, but not today. It's like him sort of reasserting his place as, as essentially the air quotes, last great movie star. I think there's a whole subtext being going on there. I think you see that in some of the more recent Mission Impossible films as well, where they're like, oh, the IMF is old news. And he's like, uh, not yet. we got a couple yeah. more. Stick around. Um, it, it also functions in that way for Val Kilmer, who's obviously, like I said, been dealing with the, the same illness. And who we don't know what the future is going to hold for Val Kilmer. Is this going to be, you know, I'd like to think we'll have many more years with him, but I don't, you know, it's it's sort of mirroring the the importance that these two actors have had in each other's lives and also we the, the uncertainty of the future ahead for for sort of both of them and so it's a it's a real like sweet sort of uh you know tribute to top gun and tom cruise and val kilmer in that way and i, I love that they are that there's so much emotion that they play off of each other with val kilmer not speaking for most of it, and with Tom Cruise reacting in large part to uh, to text on a computer screen, yeah, like I I think you know there's there's been a lot of talk like oh is this gonna end you know end up in the uh, awards conversation and all that stuff and everybody's kind of wondering whether Tom Cruise is gonna break into Best Actor, which I don't know if I see that happening, but if it does, I'm not mad at it because he's mm-hmm. he's really good in this movie, so it's it you see some of that dramatic range from, from both of them. And it's, it's, it's easily the, the emotional, like uh, emotional high point of a movie that's filled with like a lot of poignancy because of all the years in between. Like if they had made a Top Gun sequel in 1990 or something, it would have just been Maverick on another mission for the Navy. And it, it wouldn't have had this much weight to it. And it, and it's, it's hard to imagine them making a sequel uh, this strong, making this impact had it just been five, 10 years after the original film. Yeah, absolutely. And just to your point, as far as, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the awards, but I think that this was a movie that, you know, the mission impossibles are so much fun and they're really entertaining. They're great. And they're actually really great spy movies too. Yeah. But I think this was a, a movie that in surprising ways reminded people that Tom Cruise can act. He is a, triple Oscar nominee for acting. Mm-hmm. And I think people have kind of assumed that those years were gone that, you know, and they've kind of overlooked some of, some of his work in recent years. Um, and I think that that scene in particular, as you say, he's reacting mostly to text. There's so much nonverbal acting happening between both of them in that scene that it just really makes it, it, it just elevates it in such an interesting way. Whereas if they had just been having a conversation, I don't think that scene, it still would have been worked. It still would have worked. It would have been interesting, but I think that there's just something extra special about it because of the fact that Iceman and Val Kilmer have this, this limitation. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that translates to in awards. If it, if it leads to anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we were sort of mentioning the Mission Impossible franchise. I do 
I do wanted to to highlight that the the military, like the flying sequences in this film, are so much more visually ambitious. Like I I think they they work in the first movie for the time, but there's something about in the new film. I don't know if it's the type of jets that they're in or just Joseph Kaczynski's uh, visual style and what he can do with the modern technology and all that. But there's there's so much more open when you see. Obviously, the you know it's famously the actors were really in planes during that footage and all that other stuff. Uh, you can see the the environments behind them in all those shots, and I think it it adds so much tension to those sequences. And it feels it really does feel like, and you know Christopher McQuarrie's involvement also kind of brings that to this film as well. It really does feel like. Top Gun meets the Mission Impossible franchise in a lot of ways with the the uh, the scope of the stunt work with uh, with some of the like I said some of the subtext of that. What what do you make of the the Mission Impossible franchise's uh, influence on this Top Gun sequel and also how the the flying sequences compare to the original? I think uh, I think that's interesting to look at the two in terms of the stunts um, as kind of companion pieces. I think that, I mean, he's, Cruz has done his own stunts for a long time. I think the first Mission Impossible was where he first really started to focus on doing the stunts. And I think that over the years, as he's been developing bigger and more audacious um, um, opportunities for himself, I guess, um, you really see him learning and understanding what is possible to do in movies. And I think that that translates so well to this. Um, So I had the opportunity to work on a piece for Variety, which I think will be out by, I hope will be out by the time this episode is released. But um, I actually, during the course of that, um, the interviews that I conducted for that piece, I learned that the very first um, flying sequence that they filmed for the movie was the, the Canyon run scene where Maverick is showing like when he has to kind of steal the jet um, yeah. to show everyone that he can do it. And he sets the clock to two fifteen, and everyone's watching on the screens to see him. And you can really hear the physical effort that he's putting into, into this run. That was actually the first flying scene that they filmed. And the reason was because just like Maverick is there to show the aviators that this can be done. Tom Cruise wanted to show the, uh, the actors, his co-stars that they were going to be safe and that this could be done. That's so cool. Yeah. I just thought that was so amazing. And it's like, Oh, Tom Cruise is Maverick. (laughs) (laughs) He is Pete Mitchell. (laughs) No, I, I, I love that moment. And I, I, you know, of course Maverick does that. And of course Tom Cruise does that. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's a lot of similarities, not to go back to my whole like subtext thing of the Cruise is Maverick, which is why it's so funny earlier when you're like, <laughs> Tom, I mean Maverick. I'm like, same <laughs> difference. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of scenes in this movie where Maverick does something or argues for something and, and, you know, John Hamm's Cyclone and, and uh, Warlock or whatever are trying to shut it down. And then he's ultimately proven right because that's what you hear a lot from people who've worked with Tom Cruise that he fights tooth and nail for something that he believes in, especially as you mentioned with the original mission impossible, that was also his first film as a producer. Uh, he exerts that power as a movie star and as a producer on these films. And he really pushes back on things that he really believes in. And most of the time it sounds like 
people are like, damn it, <laughs> he was right. It works. He's got great instincts as a producer and a filmmaker uh, and an actor. And I think that it's, it's funny that, that that ends up being yet another example of that. Uh, but I also love how the character has evolved from the first movie, that when he does something like that, it's not to prove that he's the best. It's to prove a point to save the lives of all those other pilots. It's like at the beginning of the, in the, of the film with the Dark Star sequence, which... Uh, which feels again sort of most Mission Impossibly in a way. Uh, it's like him, you know, holding onto the side of the plane in Rogue Nation or whatever. Um, <laughs> or the the Halo jump in Fallout is probably a better example. Uh, when he says, "Oh, you know, you know what happens if you do this," and he says, "I know what happens to everyone else if I don't." It's that he is prioritizing everyone else's well being, kind of to kind of. Uh, over himself time and time again to the point that he, he jumps in and saves rooster in the, you know, in the final, uh, final showdown and the third act there. And I, yeah, I just, I just love that, that, that humanistic side of Cruz and the character. Cause he, he also has brought that to Ethan hunt in, in some of the films. I feel like in, in fallout, there's a scene where he blows his cover to save the life of some, uh, like a, like a, some young police officer, I think, or something. Uh, I believe it's in fall. It's been a while since I've watched that, but yeah. that again yeah, feels so. like a that feels like something Cruz was bringing to the table. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a real like humane side to these characters that I think is really honorable and and adds like a, a lot of heart to uh, to these big action you know spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that that moment in the Dark Star sequence in the beginning is particularly um, important to ground us and to help us understand where where Maverick is now because the last time we saw him he had just helped beat the Russians and then he went off to presumably his his dream job teaching at Top Gun which we later <laughs> learned didn't work out but um but that's where we last saw him and so when we catch up with him now and he's got this big test and he's gonna he's got to hit Mach 9 today but oh whoops nope he's got to hit 10 because they're about to shut down his program yeah and that line that you already just just um just said I think that's such a great sort of um encapsulation to help catch the audience up on the fact that Maverick is no longer out for himself like we've already talked about but I think that that moment really does it does like half an hour of career build or character building in mm -hmm. one line of dialogue yeah yeah I think so I think so uh one other big distinction we we're talking about uh the mission is that in the first movie the mission sort of comes out of nowhere they're at the, you know, they're at the the graduation ceremony, and they're like, "Oh, everyone, we're at a, it's a moment of crisis. You know, we need to get, you know, there's we need to assemble the pilots and and get a, you know, get on this mission." In this movie, they they take the complete opposite approach, which is early on, that's the inciting incident. Maverick, you're here to train these these pilots for this mission that's coming up in a few weeks. Uh, with a with a suspiciously not not named specifically uh, country, which which I think is smart uh, on a number of levels. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. especially um, when you're trying to market your movie. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's definitely not China, so don't worry about it. You'll play our movie, right? Uh, or whatever. Um, no. I, so I love that that they that they spend that time in this film. Uh, 
establishing what the mission is to the point that when they get to the third act, you, the viewer, are like, oh, oh my gosh, they got to do miracle number one and miracle number two and coffin coffin corner. And they have lingo and and like step by step what what that mission is so that you, the, the viewer, can follow it and you understand the stakes. Not only that, in that scene where they establish that that's going to be sort of the crux of the film is... He said, you know, he's assessing the situation, Maverick, and he's like, oh, someone's not coming back for this from this. So he's already the movie's already laying its stakes so that when Coyote almost dies on that, you know, that that what is that? The the G-force pull up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're already like you're come first of all, you're coming to this movie with from knowing that the first film killed off Goose in a, in a traumatic way for this character. And then the second movie is like, oh, watch out. We're going to kill some more people. Uh, it, 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 even though it, none of the major characters pass away other than Iceman, which is again, an illness, uh, it's, it, it puts that tension in you so that anytime these characters are in a, a situation like that, you're, you're worried about their fate to the point that Maverick gets shot down and they give you a moment or two to be like, he's gone. We, we lost him until the cut the screen eventually Cuts to, of course, Maverick laying in the snow. Uh, when you saw that the first time, did you did you think that Ma- they had actually like gotten remotely close to killing Maverick? You know, it's actually it's funny because the first time I watched it in the Dark Star sequence when the plane blows up, I thought maybe the rest of the movie was a flashback until he shows up, of course, in in the diner or right. whatever. But for a minute, I thought, oh, my gosh, they killed Maverick off in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> and, of course, they didn't do that. So when that didn't happen, I kind of thought he'd probably make it through. But, yeah, there was there was a brief moment when he gets shot down where I kind of thought, oh, wow, they did kill him off. And then, but, no, they're not going to do that because <laughs> Hangman needs to have his heroic moment. Exactly. But it's like in a, in a world where spoilers, James Bond g- gets killed at the end mm-hmm. of one of his movies. It's mm-hmm. they, they give you just enough hesitation to yeah. be like, oh, no, they didn't. OK, good. They didn't. <laughs> which, yeah. I, which the movie, the movie's really like there, there are points. And I feel like this movie is a little more playful in, in both its expectations, but also its tone at points like that, where you get the, that reveal of like, uh, you know, is he dead? No, he's not. Okay. Good. Good. Uh, (laughs) and then they cut to, you know, roosters, uh, rooster goes after him. And then the confrontation with the two of them (laughs) where he's like, what were you thinking? He's like, you told me not to think. And he's just like, kind of standing yeah, there. He just uh, kind of like shrugs his shoulders. Like, yeah. He's like, what do you what want do you, me to do? <laughs> yeah. Make up your mind, dude. Um, I, I love yeah. that, that, uh, that we get that, that whole, it's almost like a mini movie at that point where it's just Maverick and, and Rooster just like running around trying to make their way back. Both of are both kind of off radar and presumed dead, I guess yeah. at that point. Uh, and so I love that, uh, you know, that's another way. And it's this movie sort of, detours from the the first movie and that we have this sort of almost it feels like a side mission in a way uh in the film because it takes away from the the central climax what what did you what do we first of all i guess i should back it up a bit how, how, what are your thoughts on the way that the mission is sort of handled in each movie and then i guess the the sort of uh the third act of the third of the second film so in the first movie this is like great pilots that are going to top gun to learn to be the best pilots And then they, so they already know what they're doing more or less, but there's still a lot more to learn. And 
in so when they have their big final battle scene at the end, they get to apply what they've learned at Top Gun. What I love about Maverick and what what again is such a smart thing with a sequel is that these pilots have already all won. They were the top of their class. They've all been the top guns, so to speak. And they're being brought back to train for a particular mission. They're already the best. And yet there's still more that they need to learn. And and I think that it's so smart because these the, the Navy's best pilots still are facing a mission that is seemingly impossible. Um, sorry to reference mission impossible inadvertently, <laughs> but, but that's the thing is like, and I think that that just to your point about the, the tension um, as far as like, you know, someone's not coming back from this and, and other great moments where you do get that fear that someone, at least one person has to die. It happened in the first movie. And, yeah. but I think coupled with these, these incredible aviators who are all the best still, are faced with a challenge that they are struggling to, to meet. And I think that that all just makes it that much more of like, it's such an intense experience. It really puts you into the, that, that um, anxiety, I guess, but like the fun movie kind of anxiety where it's like, man, this really, you understand this is not something that just anybody can do. And I just think that that's, it's brilliant. And it's such a, a great choice again for a sequel. And then uh, going into that third act, I, I love it. I think it's interesting because it does kind of take a detour and kind of does sort of go off into a, a sort of a side adventure kind of, but I think yeah, it's like it uncharted works. territory. It yeah. feels for this franchise. Yeah. It works because you get this, um, and it does kind of, I think, more than Star Wars. I think that it kind of delves into a little bit of a Mission Impossible because then they have to, like, they're in enemy territory and the enemy knows they're there. And then they end up having to steal an F-14 and and Goose, or sorry, Rooster doesn't know what, he's never been in one of those. And, <laughs> like... Watching them try to figure that out is so fun. But what that does and the fact that it gives them an opportunity to work out their differences is so is so good and is so necessary. And I, I think that it's a, a really interesting way to do it rather than just having them have it out in the locker room one day or something like that. I think this was just like such a such a fun and and um, interesting in a different way. <laughs> um idea to to bring them together to work out that that big problem that's been hanging over them. Yeah, because you have the the dual conflict of not only, you know, he uh, blames Maverick on some level for what happened with his dad, but even though he was cleared of all charges and, and everything, he blames himself for it. He pulled his papers at the Naval Academy and, and held his career back several years, which because of a promise that he made to uh, to Carol unbeknownst to Rooster, I, I think all of that, that backstory, which is pretty, pretty smoothly laid out, I think throughout the movie. Uh, and I love that you mentioned the F-14 because that, that's probably as much, as close as this movie gets to really hitting the nostalgia button. That's like the T-Rex coming back at the end of Jurassic World to save the day. That's like, oh, they're back in an F-14, baby. But 
but it fits story wise because uh, you know that country would have maybe outdated technology and you know it makes sense that if maverick has been in the navy for decades he would know how to fly it and so you know is it a little you know movie contrivance to be like oh of course he happens to end up in the one place with the one plane the blah blah and he's or the whatever one pilot the, still flying that would be able yeah, to fly with, it. With, <laughs> with rooster the son of his goose who was in the same position in the f14 the original movie etc but it's like you know we're, we're going with the movie at this point but um but you know i, I love that i think it, i think it works because it makes sense because it doesn't feel you know air quotes fan servicey or anything like that and it, and that they way when it. they get to yeah. that yeah absolutely and when they get to that that moment at the end where they hug and you know the emotion on on Maverick's face and then where he says thank you for saving my life and he says it's what my dad would have done no not a dry eye in the theater or the house or wherever you happen to while watching this movie it 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 uh again hits similar beats to the original movie but in a much more in a much more emotional deeper sense where you know you have the history of these characters because I, I you know the, the thing with him and Iceman at the end of the first movie is sweet but there's a different level of re- resonance that that comes in the end of this film when you have that sort of uh, post-mission kind of uh, embrace happening yeah and you know I mean just to your point about um, you know Rooster has this you know a lot of a lot of reasons to have some um, animosity and grudges, I guess, toward, toward Maverick. But I think one of the things that's so interesting is the fact that they didn't just stick with, he's upset because of his dad, that they mm-hmm. had this, um, I honestly even think like my impression of it, and, and maybe this is me reading into things that aren't there, but my impression of it is that he didn't even necessarily have that much blame for for Maverick about his dad until this other thing happened with his with his papers and yeah. his career being set back because that gave him sort of a reason to resent Maverick and then it just sorts of, sort of steer, stirs up all this other emotion that he might not even have known was there and mm. I really appreciate the fact that they didn't didn't just make it about dad it was about something else that was very personal between the two of them. And then for Maverick to have that, that great moment where he's talking to Penny about why he did it. And she even asks him like, why would you do that? And when he explains that it was because Carol Rooster's mom had asked Maverick to, to not let him fly that she didn't want that for him. And she was dying and he was already going to lose his mom. He'd lost his dad. He was going to lose his mom. Why, why make this poor kid resent his mother for something that Maverick was going to agree to do anyway. And I just, I, I love that that was something that wasn't just hard for Rooster. It was hard for Maverick too. And so getting to see that, um, how that impacted both of them and how that affected their relationship and, and um, that they both had a lot of good reasons for their feelings in that situation, I think was was great. And then it makes that whole end sequence just really come alive in, in a different way. And the story with the two of them is so 
in some ways, in some ways feels sort of understated because it would have been really easy for that whole dynamic to slip into melodrama of like, you're not my father, you let him die or whatever, like the big, like over the top uh, emotional beats. And I feel like they play it just, just grounded enough that, that you get that sense without having to like, you know, without having to overdo it. I guess I have that having yeah. that having a big overblown confrontation uh, about you know about the the resentment that he has for Maverick and all that and I think basically what we're what we're getting at is these movies are good. They're so <laughs> these, good. These, the, I I mean I like the first one, but like I really like the second one, and I think the second one makes me like the first one more to the point where it's like I'm watching this for this podcast, and I'm like it's kind of undeniable. Like it's kind of how, how good Top Gun Maverick especially is like, yeah. it's, it's one of those films. It's going to be at the end of the year when everybody has their, their top 10 list, it's going to be the most common one that everyone has because it, it hits on all those different levels. Like it's got the performances that we talked about. It's got the heart, it's got the spectacle. It's got that sort of four quadrant appeal these days that now only you know, now only goes to Marvel films, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've been doing, as I said, I just finished doing the Beverly Hills Cop films. Looking at the box office from 1984, 1987, 1994, when movies like, you know, Gremlins and Crocodile Dundee and like these were movies in the top 10 of that year. And now looking at this year and it's just all sequels and reboots and retreads and even 1986 to 2002 with the Top Gun franchise. It's like night and day. So having a movie that like this to come out, yes, it's a sequel, but it also feels so finely tuned in a way that a lot of these other movies maybe feel more like, like I don't know, they feel more formulaic in a way that they, it feels like there's more, there's more effort. There's more love put into this one than a lot of the, not to keep picking on Marvel, but they're an easy target. Then the like four or five movies that we, they churn out, uh, you know, assembly line style a year. And I like most of those movies, but it's still, uh, there's something special at play here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. My, my experience with Top Gun Maverick started in 2019. Um, I mean, well, I've been waiting for the, I feel like I've been waiting for this movie for years in a lot, in a lot of ways, but I was, at San Diego Comic-Con, this is where I said before that I've been in the room. Oh, in the same room. <laughs> yeah. I was at Comic-Con when he came to introduce the first trailer. And he had never been to Comic-Con before. He'd never had a reason. He doesn't do comic book movies, you know. And so this was his first time to Comic-Con. And he introduced the trailer to this like rabid group of, of you know, cinephiles and and you know, big budget movie lovers. And the reaction in that room was just incredible. And that was the first time I actually thought, you know, this movie might actually be good. That first trailer (laughs) was a fantastic trailer. And then of course, later that day, they dropped the trailer for cats and everyone stopped talking about Maverick. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) but, uh, but, you know, just recently as I was doing these interviews and things for this article I was working on, um, listening to, I talked to eight different people who worked on that film and every single one of them, I've, I've done so many interviews with, with artisans from films that, you know, work behind the scenes 
costume designers and cinematographers and editors and sound designers and VFX people. I have never had the experience of um, talking to the craftspeople and listening to so many stories about the main star of the movie or even the producer being so heavily involved in the day-to-day like process of making this movie, showing up to ADR recording sessions, showing up to just check out what's happening in the editing bay. You know, all these, like all these things that are usually just kind of, you know, these teams work with the director and then that's it. Tom Cruise was super involved in every step of the making of this movie. And I think that that is a large part of why it turned out the way that it did. He understood what this movie should be. And he was deeply, deeply invested in making it that. And the, I mean, the people, the teams that that worked on it are all really, really talented people. But um, I think that his personal interest in it just made them want to work that much more to make it the best film it possibly could be. And this is, this is the result. And I think it's just, I love the first movie, but I think that, that Top Gun Maverick is every bit as good and maybe even just overall, you know, a little bit better of a film because of how much love and care goes into it. Yeah. I was going to ask your ranking. So it sounds like Maverick over, (laughs) uh, over the original movie. Is that what I'm getting from that? Slightly. I feel like they're one (laughs) too. Like for me, I can't take one without the other, but. Well, yes, absolutely. Slight edge to Maverick. Slight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's because Maverick uses the emotional juice from the first movie. It's it's the yeah. it's the fuel that that gets the story going. That like it's everything in in Maverick is tied back to what happens in the first film with Goose. And so I, I love Absolutely. that's what I'm saying about like I love how it builds from one to the next instead of just like oh Maverick on another mission he's he's flying around let's see what what he gets into now it's like. No, there's consequences for what happens in this in this world, in this, you know, in the Navy and, and in Maverick's life. So I, I love that that's that's sort of at play there. Uh, just a couple more things. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about the music at all, and I need to make sure that we we at least do that briefly. <laughs> Obviously, both movies open with Danger Zone, iconic, w- great. No no notes. I have no. What are your what What did you think of the fact that they opened Maverick? Essentially the same as the first movie. Did you like that? Because I, I think it works. I loved that. I felt like it was such a, you know, I think this is where some people were like, oh, it just feels like the same movie again. I, I think that was such a great, you know, way to set the scene. Personally, I thought it was fun. And and if you look at the two side by side, you can see like, no, the Navy has grown up a little bit too. Like these planes are right. not the F-14s. These are the F-18s. And technology is definitely different. But I think that, it it does kind of open that nostalgia box just just enough to just make you like yeah the scene is set i'm ready for this yeah if you were going to take any song and carry it over that would be the one that's the top gun anthem oh, essentially yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the pop charts take my breath away uh, had its place and here we have hold my hand by uh by lady gaga uh what do you what do you think of that song and uh, and the way that it it became such a, a an influence on the score that they went back and and incorporated that into the score to the point that Lady Gaga has a composing credit on this film as well. 
Yeah, the music the the music score story on this is a little bit weird, but but um yeah, I it's funny if you actually go back and and pay a little bit of attention to the first movie, they did that with Take My Breath Away too. Um where there's just moments where they'll catch in they'll like bring in the music a little bit mm-hmm. without the the song. So I think that was an interesting choice to kind of carry that idea over into this, but but also I just I love that song. I think it's a fantastic song. I love Lady Gaga, but I also yeah. just I think that this is such a such a great song and um I think that it really uh it really sets just like take my breath away did as a as a you know romantic theme in the first movie i think that this is such a good um kind of bookend to that do, do you think she's uh do you think she's got the oscar in the bag for the original song since we're already I, kind of touching on know, this i'm not going to say anything's in the bag but i will be surprised if she misses the nomination what is her uh main competition do you think it's hard to say. I think Rihanna. It's tricky, right? Yeah. yeah. I think Rihanna's definitely in the mix for sure. Um, it's yeah. I, I I would say right now, it at this exact moment in time, I would say Rihanna's probably her biggest competition, as well as um, is it Dua Lipa that has the Elvis song? That one's. Uh, I think it's Do- Doja really Cat. I think Doja yeah. Cat. Sorry, that's right. Um. I am not that versed with popular music. <laughs> I'm not nearly as much as I used to be either. Yeah, no, I yeah. just happen to like those two artists. So I'm like, oh yeah, Doja Cat did that one. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think it, it's a real big, Top Gun Maverick is a big question mark as far as, you know, the Academy is weird sometimes with blockbusters, uh, but it, it, it does feel like it's going to get that best picture slot for, the movie everyone saw and loved. And if it doesn't get any of the big awards, I do feel like original song might be its place to, to get something at least. Uh, also we get the volleyball scene in the first movie uh, with, with a lot of, you know, there's a lot of homoerotic reads on the original Top oh, Gun. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole, I don't even remember what it's from, but there's a whole like clip of some movie that Tarantino is in where he's like, laying down the whole interpretation of the whole movie. And I'm like, I don't know about all that, but it's interesting <laughs> to think of it from that perspective. Uh, in this one, we get the, uh, the football scene with one Republic's I ain't worried. Uh, and I, first of all, I, I love the, the, um, the miles teller kind of lean back dance thing with, with uh, on the beach. I think that's <laughs> such so many great gifts come from that sequence. Um, what do what do you think about that as one, I guess the idea of including a, uh, beach team sports, uh, sequence in the new movie, uh, <laughs> did they need to do that? Does it work? And how does it compare to, uh, to the iconic volleyball scene? I think because the volleyball scene is so iconic, they needed to do another beach sport scene in this one, but they needed to definitely make it different. And I like that they made it work by by having Maverick incorporate that activity into an actual part of the training. Like, yeah. we're going to do some team building because y'all need it. And and so I thought that was really fun and clever. Yeah, I, I, that's I, it's also indicative of what I... What I uh, I love about Maverick generally is that that movie everything like it takes the iconography and actually 
gives it a purpose. It, the, you know, the, the F-14 is in there, but it makes sense story-wise and thematically with where it puts those characters. Uh, and the same thing goes for that sequence as well. It's like, yeah, they play, they play sports and look how great they look w- with their shirts off and all of that. No complaints. Uh, no complaints from anyone on that <laughs> scene. But, uh, but it also, it's furthering the story and it's, it's you know, taking these characters and, and bonding yeah. them together and stuff. Uh, so, so I love that. Uh, what, now that this movie came out and made, you know, 1.47, whatever it is, billion dollars, do you want them to do a third film? Do you think they should leave it alone, wait 30 years and get Miles Teller when he's 50 something out there? Like, because <laughs> I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of, I've kind of mixed on it. Uh, but, but as someone who has such a history with this franchise, which it's weird to now call Top Gun a franchise because it was just a movie like a few months ago, uh, <laughs> wh- where do you, where do you land on that? I think that if they want to do more movies about naval aviators, that's fine. But I think that they need to be something separate. I think mm. Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick are perfect companion pieces. And I think that these two movies, this is Maverick's story and Maverick's story has reached an end. By the end of this movie, he is going off into the sunset with his woman and he he's done. And I don't want, I don't want another sequel, especially if he's going to be in it. I think that they need to just move on from him. Um, and I don't want another sequel that's just in name only either. So it's like, go do your, you know, rooster movie. That's fine. Maybe, but, but just leave Maverick out of it. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Like, what if they, what if they Rocky and created this and just went like <laughs> top gun rooster, or something and then brought if back like had, hangman and Phoenix and like a couple other, you know? And, yeah. If they had a good story, I, you know, I'd go watch it. That'd be fine. But I, I would like to see them move on to other things. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's actually a good segue for, we already did the, the, which of the two films you prefer, but what is the, the legacy of the top gun franchise? Assuming this is, this is, you know, at least for now, all, all we get, what do these uh, these two films contribute to cinema and and, and uh, the cinematic landscape? I guess. You know, it's funny because I think that for so many years, um, really in the last twenty years, I think that a lot of people kind of had relegated Top Gun to being this you know '80s blockbuster that wasn't really relevant today. And I think that with Maverick, we see that there is still some relevance that exists in Top Gun, but even more so we see that in, in Maverick. And I think seeing a room full of grown men cry um, really drove that home for me and really helped me see that this is a film franchise that um, means something to a lot of people. And I think that getting to see this journey of someone who is in a a world that we traditionally tend to look at as being full of, of toxic masculinity um, Mm. and, and bravado and ego and really getting to see a a, sort of a hero's journey, but, but something a little bit, a lot more personal than that. I think that these two films together, I think they, they do matter. I think they have a long, a long legacy. I think that, that Maverick really shows us that, this was a story that we didn't realize we needed, but we, we clearly did. And I think that it's, I don't know. I think it's going to be with us for a long time. 
Yeah. And, and for me, I was one of those people who was like, eh, it's an 80s movie. I'll see it when I see it. Uh, this this film gave me a, a good reason to finally go back and catch up with that. And I agree with you. Like, I don't think, I mean, if, unless you were at Comic-Con in 2019, I don't think most people would have assumed this was going to be the big blockbuster of 2022. I think yeah. that's, you know, we, we knew it would probably do well, but not outperforming all of the, you know, usual suspects when it comes to blockbusters, all the Disney stuff, basically, and all the, the Jurassic, the Jurassic movie that came out this year that everybody was like, eh, Top Gun did everything better. Um, I don't know if everybody would have necessarily assumed this would have been the box office uh, champion that it is. And I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think it hits on something that moviegoers didn't know that they, they needed. And I think the fact that, the fact that it was delayed for a couple of years because Tom Cruise was so steadfast in this being a theatrical release through COVID and everything. I, I think that anticipation only maybe fueled interest in this even more uh, because he was one of the strongest voices during that, those couple of years of nope, we're, we're the movie, the movie going experience, the theatrical experience, which is ironic because his ex-wife and all, and all the AMC commercials <laughs> <laughs> Heartbreak feels good in a place like this, uh, which has become like a punchline in and of itself these these days. Uh, so I, I I saw today on on my Facebook feed I think that like AMC's doing merchandise with like that on shirts and stuff. I was like, oh my god, they're that leaning. Well, they're <laughs> leaning into this hardcore. Um, but but he has been one of the like again the last great movie star, like the big bastion for. Uh, the theatrical experience. And this is a movie that needs to be seen on a big screen. As we're recording this news dropped, I think today that it's coming back to IMAX for a couple of weeks in December. And I'm kind of tempted to go see it again, even though I own both of these films on 4k now, I'm kind of tempted to be like, yeah, one more, one more time. It's, it's a very, it, it has such rewatchability too. This is the third time this year that I've seen this movie. Uh, I saw it in theaters and I saw it on 4k twice uh, and I'm like, especially after this conversation, I'm like, I could probably watch that again. Like in the bad, it's a, it's, it's one of those movies that works if you're locked in and focused. And I feel like it would also be like a good put on while you're doing stuff around the house kind of movie. Cause it feels, cause it has that sort of comfort to it. Like, it feels like it's a film that, that I feel like, like for a lot of people, maybe the first film is this as well. It's going to be kind of a like warm blanket of a movie that you're like, Oh, I love this. Everything about this works. And it, yeah. it just, you know, it, it has that sort of uh, sentimentality to it that, that keeps you coming back again and again. It's uh, so funny. Um, yeah. When I was, when I was talking to the director, um, he, he mentioned something that I had completely forgotten about, which was the fact that, for many years, when people were starting to get their big fancy home entertainment systems with surround sound and big screen TVs and things, Top Gun was the movie everyone tested their sound to. And I was just like, oh, that's so true. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's just, yeah, it, I, I agree with you. I think this is kind of one of those movies that a lot of people are just going to, it's going to be, it's going to have a long life. And I'm really happy that it's back in IMAX for a couple of weeks. I honestly am a little bit sad because I wish that they were doing the re-release in Dolby because that sound is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I think that I've seen it in IMAX. I've seen it in Dolby. Um, and it's great either way, but I think that there's just something extra special about really hearing it in that maximized like sound experience that, yeah, 
is just, I don't think people really realize how amazing and immersive the sound design is in that film. Yeah. I tend to lean uh, into Dolby if I have a choice for the, for the big blockbusters too. Uh, over IMAX, the, my lo- my local AMC has Dolby and IMAX theaters, and I almost always try and do the Dolby. So I, I'm 100 with you there. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Karen Peterson, for coming on to Franchise Detours to talk about Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Yeah, uh, for the moment, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on <laughs> yeah. Instagram and Letterboxd. <laughs> Basically, it's always that. That's what. I, yeah, I was going to say, that's that's what I do now at the end of these episodes. I'm just like, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter for now uh, at Crooked Table. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's always a caveat now. Exactly. But yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on all the social medias at Karen M. Peterson. I've been basically just grabbing my username on all the ones that come along. So if you're on a social media platform, see if that's me <laughs> and follow me there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Karen. This was a blast. Thank you. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate you having me on. Big thanks to Karen Peterson from Citizen Dame for coming on to discuss 1986's Top Gun and 2022's Top Gun Maverick. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, It was a blast to come on here and talk to her about those. And we'll definitely... Uh, reach out to her sometime in the near future to talk about Jerry Maguire, as we said in this episode, on our sister show, Close Watch. But that's all we have for 2022. This has been, a, as I said, a great year. I really appreciate all of your support. Those of you listening to this, uh, friends of the show, obviously guests of the show, this has been a, a, a really fun experience launching the second podcast uh, in, you know, in tandem with the rebranding of Crooked Table Podcast into Close Watch. So this has been so much fun. And I want to hear what your thoughts are on Top Gun Maverick. Do you think this thing has Oscar legs? Do you think we're looking at the, we just talked about the best picture winner or something. Who knows? We'll see. It's a, it's a wild, wild world out there uh, in cinema at the moment with everything going on. So uh, we'll see what happens. But find me on Twitter at Crooked Table. Same, well, for now, the same handle on Instagram and via email, Robert at CrookedTable.com. I also have a Tumblr and a hive. Uh, I'm not as active on those, but I, I've been meaning to step that up. So hopefully in the near future, you'll see some more Tumblr and hive posts for me as uh, Twitter becomes <laughs> a parody of itself. Uh, but for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production and the final episode of Franchise Detour. Stay tuned next year for uh, the Beverly Hills Cop mega series. All of those recorded going to be coming up in January. Followed by, uh, I believe I have some standalones in the works, but mega series wise, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We have Planet of the Apes planned. We have X-Men planned. That's going to be like half the year with those movies. Uh, So stay tuned for all of that. But uh, until next time, catch you at the next stop, everyone. Happy New Year. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-K-E-D. Z-R-O-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>